Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity and create mastery with my next guest, Alan Ellis. Now, Alan is a member of my gym, an entrepreneur here in the Valley, and he has an amazing story to tell us. Uh, We're going to dive into his story, collect that, and talk a little bit about fitness at that middle age range once we get to that point. So, Alan, thanks for being on, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here, Jason. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, brother. We talked about this for a couple weeks, and um, I'm I'm glad we got you on the schedule and got you up here. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things uh, we were talking about off mic that I didn't know about you is that you're a, a native Phoenician. Born and raised right here. Yes, One of sir. the rare few. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what was life like um, back in the day growing up in Phoenix? Well, back in those days, it was wonderful because we lived by a desert and we could just play in the desert for as long as we wanted. And when we were on bicycles, we could go right around out in the desert. And then when we graduated to motorcycles, uh, then we could literally be gone, uh, you know, all day. Uh, one time we were out, my friend and I were riding our motorcycles one day. Uh, they were uh, had just completed the CAP, but they didn't have it fenced off, so we were riding behind there, and we're sitting there in a helicopter. They used to practice helicopter landings and takeoffs there. Oh, really? Yeah, and so the helicopter lands. We're watching. The pilot comes out and walks over. He goes, you guys want to ride? And my friend's <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. My friend's like, what happens if he flies away with it? I'm like, I don't care. I'm getting a ride in a helicopter. <laughs> Yeah, we got, I mean, we got in the helicopter and left our motorcycles out in the desert. I mean, these are nice motorcycle dirt bikes. And he flies away. And we, you know, so what was it like? It was pretty amazing. Wow. I mean, to be able to get a ride in a helicopter when you're that, you know, we were probably high school freshmen. Yeah, man, that's amazing. Like, you can definitely file that under things you could never get away with nowadays, right? Oh, no, no. So much liability and, you know, he said, she said, checks and balances and all the rest of it. Or the motorcycles would get stolen. Motorcycles would get gone. <laughs> yeah, the pilot would probably get fired. Who knows? Who knows? It would be a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I mean, we could we could do a lot of things out there. A lot of things. That's amazing, man. Yeah, I grew up uh, in a rural area, and we had similar freedoms. And I've always wondered, you know, I, I didn't grow up out west, but I always wondered if there was a time out here where it was like that, where you could just kind of do your thing. No one were worried about you. Oh, yeah. I mean, our parents... We could leave when the sun's up and not just as long as we're home by the sundown. Literally, that's the, that's the way it was. Um, so, in fact, when we, where we lived north of us a little bit was uh, some skydivers. So there used to be a runway out in the desert. Um, Charlie Merritt, he was the guy. He's, um, and so at, like, second grade, uh, we would hang out there and we'd get a ride in the airplane and watch the skydivers jump out. And I, so we grew up all the time just watching the skydivers jump out of airplanes, right? Wow. Which is pretty cool. And then so then on my 16th birthday, I was actually made my first skydive back in those days. Really? Yeah, it was the beginning of 198 jumps that I made, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Wow, 198 yeah, so, jumps. Know, and, in, and being able to get under canopy and see the whole desert and how peaceful it was. You know, so it was pretty nice. That sounds gorgeous, my friend. I'm, I'm quasi-jealous of that experience. We didn't well, have anything like that. <laughs> well, once you know, no offense to anybody that bungee jumps, but you know, I had a family member say, "I'm going bungee jumping." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> you know, I've been jumping out of airplanes at you know seven thousand five hundred feet, ten thousand or eleven thousand feet. Amazing, you know, yeah, amazing. It's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. Wow. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper. I know we were talking off mic. You're giving me a little bit about your backstory. I, I thought I think what happens a lot of times nowadays is you take a look at someone, you see who they are today. 
And it's really easy to forget their history or not even be concerned with their history of how they became the person that they are. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of color around your childhood, because from what I understand, you had a bit of an interesting upbringing. Well, yeah, it was very, it was very interesting. So basically raised uh, by a single mom for a long time. Uh, first, uh, I say the first seven years, but they were married. But anyway, she was single um, and she worked very, very hard uh, to take care of us kids. Uh, my sister and I at the time, um, and I remember the time when we were living in Flagstaff. My mom was a waitress and we were sitting in the back booth to this day. I can remember that, you know, and you got to understand for her to do that. That was a sacrifice for, for her kids because that meant no tippers could sit in that booth for eight hours and we had to behave ourselves. Uh, but my mom would say, you know, um, you guys had to eat. And what she taught me, one of the things she taught me was if you're ever have a problem in life, get a, get a, get a job in a restaurant, because if you get a job in a restaurant, you are guaranteed at least one meal a day. You know, and with her working like that and, uh, you know, that really put a work ethic into me, you know, because, you know, everybody's like, well, my dad went to work, you know, every single day and all that stuff. Right. And, and that's good. Men, and men should do that for their families. Mm -hmm. But what happens when there's no man to do that? You know, and so the young man sees there and goes, wow. You know, and so she put that work ethic in me. And I've told her that before, you know, mm. and she she's like, wow, you know, because she worked very hard for us. Yeah, it sounds like she was an amazing woman. Was uh, was your father in the picture at all back then, or was he just kind of no, no? They ghost? got the, uh, my biological father, who died, was uh, had mental illness, mm. uh, schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenic, and he was locked up in for ten years. Oh, really? Here yeah. in the valley, or no, in Tucson? Okay, yeah. And uh, he appeared back in our life. When I was probably seventeen, and that's why I was probably thirteen. Yeah, I was about thirteen when, wow. he, showed, when he showed back up for a little bit. What was that like for you as a, as a young male, seeing your father that you really didn't know? Well, I, my mom was remarried then, so we had a stepdad, so I did have a, a father figure there, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but then seeing, you know, this guy that, you know, like, this is your dad. This is, this is the guy I would lay in bed crying for. Dad, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? That's typically after I was disciplined, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I met him, and it was just like, this is the guy. Yeah. You know, um, but he, you know, he, he had his issues, you know, and then, and he was a very, very sick man. Mm -hmm. you know, and so, so yeah, you know, and, uh, but he's gone now. He's died now. Mm. Yeah. Did you guys ever have an opportunity to develop a relationship or was that even something that you wanted? Oh, I definitely wanted it. Um, but because of his illness, you know, he would be in and out of the picture. And so after a while, you know, um, it was more me than him because my sister would keep a very good relations. She basically became his caregiver for the rest of his life. Oh, your sister did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm raising kids. Mm -hmm. um, I'm being very careful who my kids are around. Right. You know, um, but he, you know, for a while there, I thought he was doing pretty good. Uh, then, uh, then he disappeared again. And then I didn't see him again until he was, uh, uh, had some surgery. And then I saw him, one day, then the next time I saw him, he was in hospice, mm. and he had a, a week to live. Oh wow, oh wow, a week to live. Yeah. What was his uh, condition at the time? Well, he was dying of COPD. Oh, okay. And so it's uh, you basically just drowned or you can't breathe. Mm. Yeah. So it's not very pretty. Definitely not, man. Yeah. Definitely not. Now I know that uh, your grandmother played a big role in your life as a young man. Yeah. 
Can you uh, tell me a little bit about what that experience was like and sure. some of the things that, yeah. that she imparted to you? Well, my great-grandmother, uh, she um, always knew her. She was single. I mean, her husband had died, so I didn't even know him. Mm-hmm. And so she lived down down uh, by Grant Park in Phoenix, um, and she had her house, and she had her front house. She always took care of that place. The place was immaculate, fruit trees, grass always cut, but with a push mower. Right. <laughs> of but, course. Right. And, um, and so she really taught me how to respect older people because uh, one day I ditched church. She would go to church on Wednesdays in the morning, and uh, I said, "None, I got to go to the bathroom, and I left. And, uh, you know, so because I was in summer school. And so, you know, I finally get back on the bus, go to school, do my thing at school, and I get off of school, and she's waiting for me. And I don't think anything wrong. Oh, hi, Nana. She's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, she called me carajo, which I grew up, as I always thought, was a term of endearment. <laughs> but I found out it means rascal. <laughs> and uh, so we got we got back, and she was going to spank me with one of those really thin belts that the old ladies used to wear. Oh, yeah. The thin and, ones really hurt, man. Yeah. And I told her, you're not going to do that. And I ran around behind a, a rocking chair. And she grabbed the rocking chair, and she just threw it. I mean, I'm like, this woman's 75 years old. I'm seven <laughs> or eight. You know how old I was. And uh, she took care of business. She definitely took care of business. And because of that, after that, she never had a problem with me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we got along wonderfully. And it's just interesting how that discipline changed my life towards her. I mean, other people, I'm having, I'm giving a hard time, but never her. Right. You know, because she disciplined me that day. Really. So do you think that's just because she drew the line and she said, you know, listen, this is, this is what I will accept or won't accept from you? Or was there something deeper there between y'all and your relationship? Uh, she loved me. And she, you know, that she's old school. Right. You know, um, and she loved me and she cared about me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're that young and your life's that messed up, and someone, people will take discipline if they from the person, and they'll receive it if the person doling out the discipline actually feels uh, something towards the person they're disciplining. Mm. If there's if there's relationship there, if there's love there, if there's if it's just harsh, you know, discipline for discipline's sake, it, it's there's it not the same the same thing. But with her, I mean, there was never any doubt that she loved me. I mean, I'm 18 years old and I come over and she's, you know, mijo, you want something to eat? And so, yeah, so she always, she'd make food. I mean, so that's the way it always was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she, she had a very Im- big impact on my life and I, I don't look at older people um, as, you know, just people that have been used up. These are older people have great wisdom and to be able to learn from them is a big deal. That is a big deal. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think there's some truth to to the fact that I think nowadays, or even, you know, not even nowadays, but, you know, over the course of my life, I've seen people sort of discount elderly people or older people in in general and not really consider them worth their time. Or, you know, like uh, I think I remember going to a nursing home when I was in high school. We were doing some sort of trip where we're going to go and spend time with the elderly there, right? And the big idea was, oh, we're going to talk about the generation gap with them, right? (laughs) 
And so we show up and we start this and the older people, they're, they're looking at us. They're like, you're just like every other group that came through here. They want to talk about the same thing. You know, they reminded us that they were, you know, that they were once our age and that they had similar experiences, that life wasn't really that different for them. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your take on that? Well, I think with older people, you can, because uh, in my business, I sit with a lot of older people mm-hmm. and some of them have given up on life. Some of them are 65, pulling on oxygen tanks. Other ones are 80 years old in strongman competitions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them uh, here, their families are in different parts of the state or different parts of the country. You know, and they do. They feel really lonely. You know, and a lot of people just discount that their age. You know, uh, my daughter, she was working in a in a, a facility that had a lot of older people in it, and she would love to talk with them. She found out one time one of them was a spy for Winston Churchill. Wow. You know, and you, you would look at her and you would say, you would, "My daughter said I had no idea," but she took the time. See, people take the time with older people to learn about their lives. There's a lot that can that can be learned, you know, because a lot of them have experience, you know. And then again, I'm sitting with a family one time, and they have, you know, soft music playing in the background, and I'm doing their application, and it's ACDC, <laughs> right? And then Ozzy Osbourne comes on. That's what they're playing in the background. Right, right. Okay, so people have no idea where people come from. Right, exactly. You, know, you think older people, you think Lawrence Welk. Yeah, black and white TV and right. yeah. the whole nine. Yeah, and so just the fact that they have experience that people don't really pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You know, Is there a particular memory that you can recall sitting with, uh, with someone where you really learned something that you thought was just amazing or, or really shocking or surprising? Yeah, so I'll never forget this. Um, so I'm doing a sales call on a guy. He's a veteran. And uh, I walk in the door and he's got he's in a retirement home and he's got an I love me wall. And an I love me wall is where a veteran will put all their paraphernalia. They'll put their flags, their medals, their awards. You know, that's why they call it an I love me because it's all about them. Mm-hmm. And I go in there and I look and he's got things about the Baton Death March. And I even get emotional about it now because I'm talking to a guy that I'm free because of what he did. And I've never forgotten. That has probably been the most impactful on my life, you know, because he was, he was, he was willing to talk to me about it. Most aren't willing to talk about what they went through, you know, and that was pretty incredible, you know? And so, you know, so it's kind of, two different spectrums or two ends of the spectrum, you know, with him, that was very, I mean, that was really cool. I was kind of messed up for the rest of the day. Yeah. You know, that's really cool. But then I sit with another fan, another veteran and, and he at 80 years old or 82 years old, he's in strongman competitions, going to Colorado, throwing beer kegs around, you know? And so that, that amazes me, you know, how, you know, here's two different ends of the spectrum. You know, one guy's free. One guy did all that so we could be free. You know, another guy, he's enjoying his freedom and he's a veteran and he's healthy. You know, it's just kind of like, wow. So these are the people that I get to meet on a regular basis, you know. And so when I met him, it was like, wow. I mean, what are the chances of meeting somebody like that mm-hmm. that's willing to share that with you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, so many people from that generation, they think they were, you know, my, I think of my grandparents, and they were hard men at one point, you know, and the war changed them in a lot of ways, but they never really wanted to talk about it. Never no. really wanted to talk about it at all. My grandfather would never talk about World War II, mm. ever. He never would. He never would tell me anything, which is unfortunate because, you know, if, if, uh, um, I've always wanted to put a documentary together for veterans because I sit with a lot of them mm-hmm. um, about about their military service and what it meant to them. And then one of the ladies told me, he said, that's going to be very difficult because most veterans won't talk about, if they've been to war, most won't talk about it. Mm. And why do you think that is? Why is it that so many men and women don't want to, you know, just just tell someone about that experience? You would think on some level it would be cathartic. Well, uh, <laughs> war people have to do things that um, they're not that go against their grain as a human being uh, I had my son he was uh, in Iraq I believe it was and uh, this Iraqi guy was beating up this his wife right there in front of the Marines and my son had to be physically restrained right because he says well, where I come from you don't do that to a woman that's right and they told him well you ain't at home and in other things that they do because of the horror that they see, you know, um, a lot of them just, it's, they don't want to talk about it. They, they probably can't, you know, because it's kind of like they just comp- compartmentalize that and move on with their life. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think it's because it's what they've seen, you know, and they, they don't want to relive it. You know, it's like anything else. And if you look at anything else in a person's life, when there's tragedies happened in their life to them, or they've seen something like that happen, you know, they don't typically want to talk about it, you know, because it's pretty traumatic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and so I think that's kind of why they don't do that. Yeah, I could see that. I, I think, you know, what little I know, and, and, and granted it's very little, but what I can understand about those, the wars over time and as warfare has developed, like World War II was probably the last war where we had actual, you know, like heavy trench warfare where men were literally face-to-face killing one another, you know, shooting people in the heads when they would pop their helmets up kind of a thing. Nowadays, you know, you hear psychological, um, I guess, horror stories of men and women who sit behind a computer screen driving drones and killing people on video. And they're still impacted, but it's not the same thing. You're not looking at someone's face as you drive a a knife through their heart or, you know, shoot them in the head or whatever the thing is. You know, that's, that's, um, that's the price of freedom, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In some sense, yeah, for sure. That's, you know, I mean, that's I'm grateful because, I mean, I experienced freedom because of what people have experienced so that, you know, us in America don't have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you talked about, um, you know, being, I think your words were messed up. You, know, you talked about being a messed up young boy or a young man. And then I know at one point you joined uh, the Army. But what were you, what were you referring to when you said you were a messed up young man? Well, being a young kid like that, um, uh, was not having the bio dad around, several different stepdads around. Uh, now I understand what it is. Uh, back then I didn't. Um, it's because I didn't have a male figure that seemed to care about what I was doing in my life. Now that's a 50, 55 year old man talking about a seven year old kid. Sure. It's pretty simple now, right? Because right. you know, 
But back in those days, I just wanted somebody to love me and somebody to care about me because when I was in school, I had two favorite teachers, Mr. Bushnell and Mr. Corey, fifth and sixth grade. Um, and when I showed up in uh, second grade and I was running away, throwing te- rocks at teachers, yeah, I was that kid, you know. And so, I mean, even in second grade, you remember those desks where you used to have the desk and you sat in the chair, it was all one piece? Mm-hmm. With oh, a yeah. ki- second grade with another kid sitting in there, I picked it up and threw him against the wall and he had to get stitches. Wow. That's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on uh, Ritalin, you know, um, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but in that second grade time, the Mr. Bushnell, fifth grade, and Mr. Corey in sixth grade, uh, they, I was put in, in second grade, I was allowed to spend time with them in their class. And all of a sudden I was like behaving because these guys weren't going to put up with it. They weren't going to put Mr. Corey in sixth grade. I mean, really, I mean, he, he corporal punishment and he dished it out and I was going to fight him and he didn't care. We went in the bathroom and he was going to do what he's got needed to do. So it's interesting how with, with those two guys, I always performed well. Uh, but when that, when I didn't have that, I didn't, I didn't do so well. Right. And, um, a lot of the reason, um, you know, we were, uh, a lot of times we were alone growing up, you know, so we kind of had to take care of ourselves, you know. Uh, Mom and dad had to do what they had to do to keep food on the table, which is good. I, I, that's wonderful, you know. But um, when with our kids, we just made sure that they weren't left alone for long periods of time uh, because I believe that that can cause a lot of issues, you know, because kids are trying to figure out life right, with no direction, and the, the TV gives them direction, mm-hmm. really. Um, and so for me, uh, I was just, I, part of the reason is back in those days, I, I, I couldn't, I had a hard time focusing on, on one or two things to be able to do it. Um, I could play musical instrument. I was learning how to play instrument when I was a kid and I could focus and do very well on that. Uh, but it was just kind of interesting. So like when I would have these temper fits, I would get attention. Um, and people's like, oh, you just want attention? Well, I understand why I did it when I was a kid, and I understand why young children do it today. It's not for attention. It's because they want somebody to care about them. That's the reason that they act out like that. And so when I would act out, they'd put me in a, in a situation with a younger child to teach them something, either how to spell or write, and I just excelled at that. So as long as I did that, I was okay. But as soon as I was left to my own, my own devices, then I would get in trouble. So, so the the two male teachers that you mentioned would put you with younger children, or was this a, a different uh, scenario where you're talking about you were teaching younger kids? Mm-hmm. So uh, they there was uh, like a classroom where they would have uh, a, a special, not special ed, they probably call it special ed. Um, but p- kids that were struggling in school, mm-hmm. they would put them in that. And then they, these people, the teachers there and the student aides would teach them how to do things, how to spell. Like these p- kids couldn't spell the word and. Mm. So I would sit there and go, okay, this is how you spell and. And we'd go over it a hundred times and I just loved it. And I did really well. Um, by the time I was, you know, sixth grade, I was doing a lot better. You know, I got an award for the most social development of the year. <laughs> that should tell you something right there. Wow, that's and, amazing. And, yeah, and so I was I was so messed up that as a kid, 
uh, from the time I was second grade all the way through that through elementary, they had all my teachers lined out for me. Lined out meaning. So in second grade, I knew who my third. They knew who my third grade teacher was going to be. My fourth oh, grade teacher, my fifth grade, and my sixth grade. And uh, I had a fourth grade teacher one time. I was really upset. Mm-hmm. Who knows why? And I said, I got to go. I got to go to the nurse and get my pill. She goes, You're not going to the nurse. You're never taking that again as long as you're in my classroom. And I never took it again. And this was Ritalin. Yeah. At the time. Imagine what happened. If the teacher did that today. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But it probably saved my life. Really. Yeah. So did you, what, what, did that hold true? Did she, did she hold true to form? Like you're not I never, went, never went back on it ever again. Never saw mm-hmm. another yellow tablet in my life. Right. So you really never needed it. It was just, you didn't really know where the line was. Right. Anytime a line was drawn, I did well. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime there was no line, I didn't do too well. I think yeah. that's the way it is for most kids. And that's interesting that, you know, um, there's been a lot of research on this actually with, uh, children who came from, you know, either broken homes or fought or homes without fathers. And it turns out that what the research shows is that a lot of times the, the children actually learn empathy from the father, not from the mother figure. It turns out empathy is one of those masculine traits that, you know, a biological father or a father figure would impart to a young male specifically, because when you're doing things like wrestling around or, you know, you're roughhousing in some way, shape or form, there's a line that can't be crossed because when you cross that line, it turns from play to a real fight. And daddy always knows where that is, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. He'll let you know. Yep. Right. But sometimes with uh, the feminine, that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with kids. Um, I see a lot of kids nowadays who don't understand the hurt that they impart to other kids. And then I learn a little bit about them. And it turns out that they're from a single parent home or, mm-hmm. you know, they have very little adult supervision, especially from the masculine energy sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's a bit of what you experienced when you had these two guys kind of drawing a line in the sand saying, listen, buddy, you're not going to cross this line. Or if you do, there's going to be a hell to pay kind of a thing. Yeah, it was when I, when I left uh, elementary school um, and I went to middle school, they called uh, the middle school and wanted to know how I was doing. And they go, we don't even know who he is. Wow. So I was doing much better by then. So your reputation had sort of dropped off at this point, huh? You, yeah, you yeah. became a good, a, a better kid. Yeah, good well, kid, you know, so to speak. Yeah, sports and different things, you know, and did okay, you know. Um, yeah, high school. Nice. Yeah. What was elementary school at that point? Was it uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, or first through sixth? First through K through six. K through six, and then seventh, eighth. Seventh and eighth, junior school, middle school, then eight, nine, and ten. Eight, nine, and ten. 11 and 12 high school. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. They, you know, it seems like every school system I've been, I've been to divides it up differently. I know for us it was, you know, fifth through eighth was middle school and then ninth through 12th was high school. But, uh, Christina, like my wife, her school is totally different as well. It sounds like more like of the arrangement that you had. Yeah. I would, yeah, that's just the way it was. Yeah. So did you write out the rest of your, um, grade school years, you know, pretty much toe in the line and, and, and no, uh, <laughs> I mean, I still would get in trouble and do do stupid, you know, impulsive things. You know. But now that I understand how uh, how the brain works, because my brain was not fully developed, mm-hmm. fifth grade, sixth grade, and uh, when the prefrontal cortex is not properly developed yet, kids are impulsive. Right. That's why they get impulsive. You know. So. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a gap in which uh, consequences aren't really understood. Mm-mm. And, and it's interesting that that doesn't continually or are fully form until about 25, depending yep. on which study you read. 
and it's interesting we have kids basically telling parents how they should be parented in this in this world which is like uh, that makes no sense whatsoever you're the parent the kid you know needs to be you know basically formed or molded in a certain sense in in the right way or, or challenged to make good decisions not necessarily left to their own devices i see a lot of kids who are basically left to their own devices yep um latchkey kids never went away <laughs> definitely not so um you know, obviously you went through school, things started to change a little bit for you. You had some positive influences, it sounds like, some positive experiences, some experiences that shaped you. And then I understand you went into the Army at a fairly young age. Yeah, I signed up delayed entry at 17. Um, I was living on my own. Um, my parents had a rule, if you can't live by our rules, you can move out. So I moved out. There's no animosity. I didn't get thrown out. I moved out. I wanted to live a party lifestyle. So by the time I was 17, you know, I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to graduate next year. I'm doing a lot of drugs. I'm doing a lot of drinking. Um, so I said, you know what? I think I'm going to join. Well, actually what I said, I told my dad, I want to join the Navy. My dad was a pro, my stepdad. I told my stepdad, I want to join the Navy. He goes, why in the blankety 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 blank would you want to do that? <laughs> And I said, I can see the world. Now, he's a Pearl Harbor survivor, so he told me what Pearl Harbor was like. Okay. And he goes, well, let me tell you the way it's going to be. You're going to get on the ship. They're going to send you out in the middle of the ocean for six months. You're going to come back for two days, and then you're going to go back out for six months. I said, I think I'll join the Army. <laughs> so, but I just joined the Army just because I, cause, um, I could just, you know, party away. Mm -hmm. I could live a life that I thought, you know, uh, I could go to Germany. There's a lot of beer there. Yep. Right. Uh, and uh, so that's why I joined. So that way I could, uh, I could party. I'd still have a place to sleep. And I could still have clothes on my back. You know, I'd still have food. I could give up the top of ramen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. You talked about this, I think, off mic, but, uh, you know, how this idea that, you know, people see a veteran or, you know, someone who served or is serving and they immediately want to say something like, thank you for your service. Yeah. You know, and a lot of veterans, the, at least some of the older, more honest ones are like, you know, I didn't really go in because I felt a lot of patriotism toward the country. I went in to escape my circumstances or I went in to yeah. see the world or whatever the thing is. And, um, you know, speak to that a little bit. What's been your uh, understanding or experience around that idea? Well, I think uh, since Desert Storm, you know, since the Desert Storms, I think a lot of veterans. get That was what, 91? 88. Yeah, 80, somewhere around there. Early, yeah. late 80s, early yeah. 90s. Late 80s, early 90s. Um, so America has really changed about the way they treat their veterans. Um, I never, growing up, I never re remembered anybody recognizing a veteran, ever. Really? Never. I, to this day, I can't think of one time where if, you know, if you're a veteran, stand up. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I think that America's really changed in a good way for that. Um, but many, many, you know, veterans, that's what, that's why we joined Let's just be real. We were, you know, 17, 18 years old. You have no opportunity. You don't think you're not going to go to college. You're going to work at a fast food joint for the rest of your, and when you're that, when you're that young, I'm going to work in this fast food joint for the rest of my life. And that's why people think that's what I used to think. And I'm like, that's not going to happen to me, but you know, I really like to like to have a good time. And so I think, you know, when people say, thank you for your service, I never tell a veteran that. I tell a veteran, thank you for fighting for my freedom. Because mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Because that has more feeling and that's more real 
then thank you for your service. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sit with other veterans in business and they'll, they find out that I'm a veteran too. And they're like, well, thank you for your service. And I'm like, well, thanks for fighting for my freedom. Mm. And they're not used to that, you know, because thank you for your services. Hey, it's a beautiful day out, isn't it? It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. It doesn't really mean much. No. And even, even if a guy, so I'll sit with, I'll sit with some veterans um, and they'll say, well, I've never been in combat, so I'm really not a good veteran. Well, you know, uh, you have to have a standing army, standing military during, during peacetime also, you know? And so those people are still fighting for the freedom, even though they never got shot at, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, but you know, some of these veterans that I've met, I met one veteran, he was bait in Vietnam. Literally he was bait. His job was to go out and draw enemy fire. And then when he drew enemy fire, pop a smoke grenade. Wow. Now, so that's pretty heavy duty. That's very, you know, heavy that's, duty. you know, and, um, so that's what it means fighting, fighting for my freedom. You know? Wow. I think that people would do that. They get a lot better response. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And it also, I mean, like you said earlier though, these guys, some of these guys don't want to talk about it. No. You know, so a lot of people don't know, I think what to say in those moments. And you hear those catchphrases, those cat poster phrases, you know, like, thank you for your service. Yeah. And so you just say it because you don't really know what that person experienced. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's kind of like just saying, how you doing? You know? Yeah. And considering, you know, it's one of the, I mean, we're, we're not free without a military. I mean, whatever people's position are on war is their position, but you can just look at history. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, we're not eating fish and chips because of a war. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. And what year did you go into the service? I went in, in 1985. I graduated, uh, in, uh, in June, uh, first of June, and I was in thirty uh, less than thirty days later, two weeks later, actually. Wow! Did you have a particular job that you wanted to do in the army? Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to work on computers, and uh, so I was uh, sp- thirty-five Echo, which is a special electronics device repairman, mm-hmm. and that sounds really good. <laughs> um, uh, graduated top of my class. Not bragging, just saying. Um, thought that was going to be really cool. I could, but when I got to permanent party, now this is the time when electronics was changing very radically. We're going from tubes to transistors, from transistors to, to PCs, okay? And so the military was a little slow on the uptake, so uh, I, really, I never really saw anything I was trained to work on. And guess what? I would get in trouble. How so? Well, well, I was in Germany and would go downtown and, and get drunk. And, you know, um, the last time I got drunk before I sobered up, I attempted to murder someone. Um, he was, uh, upstairs and we had had a conference, you know, you got to understand the military is, it's just different. And so, uh, I, we were driving drunk one time and I could have got pulled over because they're hanging out of the car while we're driving down the street Mm -hmm. in Germany. That's, you know. And that kind of really made me angry. So later on, later on the next weekend, I'm following him into the bars and I'm really, I'm really drunk. And he goes into the, into his, and so I follow him to another bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally he leaves that, that second bar and he almost runs back to the barracks or takes a taxi so he can get a lead on me. Right. And it's, it's not so half a mile from the bar. So he knew you were following him? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, and so then I meet him in the barracks. Uh, he was six foot two, 
something like that. I'm five foot seven. Uh, and I jumped up and punched him in his eye. He ran upstairs into uh, his office or to his, his, his room, shut the door. And I took a fire extinguisher and tried to break down his door. Mm. Um, and that was the last time I ever got drunk or ever wow. drank any liquor ever again. That was it. I was done. And what were the consequences of that? I'm sure you had to do something. Well, um, or did you guys keep it kind of quiet? No. So this is a good thing about leadership, quality leadership. So I'm in the army. I'm expecting to get busted in rank. I'm expecting it. I deserve it. Right. Okay. So I, I get what's called a company grade article 15. So it's non-judicial punishment, no judges, no anything. It's not even going to leave my file with me if, if I go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So I had to pay a hundred bucks for the door and I had to do duty for two weeks, but that wasn't. So we had a West Point captain at the time who was trained how to handle people. And so I'm, I'm asking my sergeants and my lieutenant, when am I going to be put in front of the captain? When am I going to really get in trouble? I mean, I'm seeking this. I mean, they're all like, just be quiet. I'm like, no, I mean, what is that, right? There's something in me screaming out for like, I deserve, you know. And so I'm sitting, I, so I go in front of the captain and uh, he, you know, he kind of reads me the riot act a little bit. And he says, so we're giving you the company grade article 15. You know, so I'm like, okay, great. And he goes, and what I want you to do, I need a commo guy. So you're going to go into the commo room and what you're going to do is you're going to take care of all the communications equipment for the company. And I'm like, oh, cool. And so, so, so I got a little, a little bit of trouble. But this was demonst- first demonstration of quality leadership I'd ever seen in my life. Because here's a guy, he's a captain. He, he can put me in jail. He can put me out of the Army. Okay. And this was not the first time I was in front of him. It was the most serious time. The first time I was in front of him, my wife, who was in the army at the time, we uh, were in Germany there. That's where we were stationed. It's the Chris Kendall Mart in Nuremberg. It's the biggest thing for Christmas. We have no idea. It's our first time we've ever been in Germany. And so we would just get a place. Um, we'd rent a hotel room for the night. Well, we couldn't find a place. Could not find a place at all. So we go back to the barracks to sleep, which is like a no-no. And then they pull what's called a health and welfare inspection, which is where they come knock on the doors. They can inspect anything you want. So here I am, I'm busted. Mm-hmm. And, and so the captain's like, you know, you're, we're going to go home and get married because we haven't even married yet. And so we're getting ready to go on leave, you know, at the end of the month. And uh, he's like, you know, you're, you're jeopardizing your leave. I'm like, yes, sir, I know. You know, and so nothing ever came of that. Nothing. He called, he had the first sergeant call the, her company commander to verify that she was actually a, 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 an army soldier, you know. Mm-hmm. So she was, she, she got yelled at, but nothing happened to her. Right. But with Captain Neusser, that was the first real demonstration of quality leadership I'd ever experienced, you know. I mean, the school kids and all that stuff, that's all leadership, but it says you don't pay attention to that. Right. But as an adult, you know, I'm 18 I was probably, I was 21 with the, like when I almost was going to kill the guy. And, uh, that was just quality, quality leadership that really, uh, saved my bacon. And this really. was the same guy from West Point you were talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah. So what was it that, uh, about those two experiences that caused you to look back on that now and think, man, you know, he really handled that well. Well, um, 
it's the difference between judgment and mercy and grace. It's, I mean, he could have passed judgment on me. So in dealing with people, I've learned how to kind of just look at the situation, see if there's a judgment that needs to happen, right? Or is there a grace that needs to happen? You know? Um, so I think for me, that just, that's kind of how I looked at it to this day. You know, the fact that he did not do everything that he was in his full legal authority to do and power to do, and he didn't do it. So did that earn, you know, did that earn your respect of him in, in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because he's a West Pointer, they're all trained a certain way, all of the service. Oh, yeah. They're all trained a certain way. And when he took over the company, he took over the company from a captain who was not nearly as, I mean, it was horrible. Company morale was horrible when I got to the company. So when Captain Neusser, the West Pointer guy, got in there, he started having these formations. He inspected every 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 item in the company that he was signing for, right down to the screwdriver. So he would the captain would come into your section and we would sit there in a circle and he would say, Okay, some of your screwdriver. Now I'm thirty years removed from that, just about yeah, about thirty years removed from that. I know now what he was doing. He was establishing camaraderie with his troops. I'm thinking inventory, oh my god. And then we would, uh, he put out an SOP, standard order operating procedure for how we were supposed to be dressed for alerts. An alert is where you're tested to see if you have to go to battle, see how the company does, and they have umpires and everything. And so he had this, this uh, drawing drawn up. We had to have it on the right side of our wall locker at eye level. And so he started having these alerts, and uh, he would be wearing, dressed exactly the same, exactly the same, always. Didn't matter what. You know, and he was really good. He changed morale. Uh, he put beer back in the barracks. Everybody, that's why probably what people liked him. <laughs> but but the incidences weren't. The previous captain took him out because the incidents were so high. Mm-hmm. So how is it you can have a captain before it's got to take the booze out of the out of the company because the incidents are so high? But you get another guy in there, he puts it back, and the incidences are not as high. Right. I happen to be an incident, but then, right, right? right. And so one uh, then after he left. The new captain came in, and we had an alert, and he's wearing a ski glove. He's wearing ski gloves. And we could see the little um, metal thing that you clip the ski gloves together with, mm-hmm. and he lost the whole company that day on that one alert. You know, 150 people, 100, 150 people don't want to follow this guy. And that was because, like, he was literally doing the glove treatment on everyone? No, he... he, he so, in the Army, you were... In the wintertime, back in those days, he had green wool with a black leather shell. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. And he's and the new captain is wearing ski gloves. We're all freezing. And he's toasty. I got you. So he he effectively wiped everything out that the previous captain had built. Yeah, so he separated himself from you guys instead of being part of the, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically. Yeah, wow. We do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, that's that's the worst. So basically, just brought hip hypocrisy in on the first first opportunity, huh? Well, and he was not considered a good leader even when I left. You know, right. after I left left the unit, right? You know, so that leadership was a big deal. Yeah, of course, especially in that circumstance. Amazing, amazing. Wow. So, how long were you in the service? I was in for three years. Three years. You and you and Ann both. Yeah, Ann was in for four, 
And so I was actually a dependent for nine months. <laughs> so she got stationed at Fort Benning and um, I was the dependent. We had a son, David. Uh, I didn't have to work. I'm sitting at home watching these girls do aerobics, right? With my, and I'm like, I'm going out of my mind. So I just told my wife, I told Anna, I said, I've got to get a job. Yeah. I have got to get a job here. So I got a job and I get out of the house. Yeah. And the Fort Benning's back in my stomping ground, man, back in Georgia. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful there. Some of the most friendliest people I ever met were lots in Georgia. Of, lots of trees and water. That's for sure. Pine trees. Lots of pine trees everywhere you look in every K- direction. Kudzu. Kudzu too. Yeah. <laughs> The immigrant plant that has taken over. Yep. Yeah. Kudzu. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned that. A lot of people uh, have never even heard that word, but when you drive it down the road and you see that vine growing on every telephone pole or wire, power line and wire, yeah. it's like, what is that? That's kudzu. Not a native plant, but I guess it is now. Yeah. Interesting, man. So you and Ann, you said you guys are going to get married. Um, when you got caught, when you got busted together, you said you, you had plans already to get married at this point. When did you guys ultimately tie the knot? Oh, yeah. So uh, we were 19 years old, came home, got married in my mom's house. and uh, So that's uh, it's a good thing Captain Neusser didn't because we had plane tickets bought and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So you came back, got married, and then went back yep, yep. to finish out your term? Yep. Yep. Amazing. Definitely. Yeah, so I finished it, and um, she got pregnant, and then so she had to leave a little earlier to get to Fort Benning. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So what was the next chapter like? You came out of the, you came out of the service, both of you guys, you're married, you've got a son at this point. And then, um, what was next, uh, in terms of, of development for you? Well, when we, we left, uh, Fort Benning and, um, so we left Fort Benning and we came to back to Phoenix. And so I wanted to live in Wisconsin. She would have nothing to do with it because that's where she's from. And so when I find out it's 40 degrees below zero or 40 degrees, I don't want to live there either. And why did you want to live in Wisconsin? Because I went there the most beautiful time of the year. Oh, I see. And uh, so I said, I want to live here. She goes, no, we're not. I said, no, this is beautiful. I want to live because I'm from Phoenix desert. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm like this is really beautiful. I'm like, I could live. She goes, you can stay if you want. I'm going to Phoenix. I guess we're going to Phoenix. <laughs> and yeah. uh, months later uh, I was talking to my brother-in-law and he's like, it's 40 degrees. Wow. You know, below zero. Below zero. Below zero, yeah. And my wife, said, my wife says, and you wanted to live there? Yeah. You know, yeah. So so we came back here. Um, I just got a, I got a job. I tried run. I had my, as a printer, as a uh, printer, uh, press operator back in those days. Mm. And so uh, did that. Had a little print shop on the side. Uh, but uh, our marriage is really a mess. By a mess, it was really a mess, and uh, she lost her job, and I think we were back not even a year, year and a half, and so she lost her job. So I was working, so we had to move into this little apartment that was three hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. It's two bedrooms, you know, and so it, you know, it was slummy. Well, it was at least it was keep the rain off and the sun out, you know. Yeah, and uh, so our marriage just was deteriorating very, very quickly. Well, you guys are just kids at this point, you know. So what is um What's your understanding of what took place to cause your marriage to deteriorate back at that time period? Well, it was me, mostly me. Just a lack of maturity or what? No, no, it's, uh, it's basically, I'll use the word sin, uh, because I kicked her out of the apartment for another woman at the time. Well, that'll do it, yeah. Yeah. They don't um, like that. No, and I told her I'm keeping our son, mm. and she still left, and she, so she left, and uh, so I'm raising, I'm a single dad. Interesting, right? Right. So I'm a single dad. 
uh, the thing with the other lady blows up um, and comes back, but we're still going to wind up getting divorced. You know, we're, we're going to mediation and everything. Um, and then, uh, then I became a Christian. I surrendered my life to Jesus. And he took that brokenness and gave me a brand new life. Mm. So talk to me about that. You know, you don't just become a Christian. You don't just wake up one day and become a Christian. You know? <laughs> no, you don't. So, you know, what was the pathway toward, you know, deciding that, you know, you wanted to do that? Sure, sure. So God has a plan for for me and has a plan for everybody on his planet. And that plan is a very good plan. But because of choices and decisions that we make, bad choices and bad decisions, which is called sin. It gets us out of his plan. And so for me, that resulted in brokenness. So at 24 years old, I'm bipolar, manic, depressive. I'm on lithium. Okay. I'm an AA. Okay. Uh, you know, and I'm an adulterer. Let's just call it what it is. And I'm not proud of that, but that's just the way it was. Sure. Uh, and so, because of that, I mean, I was a broken man inside. I could still work my job and everything, uh, but it got so bad before I became a Christian. I would sit on the couch and literally slobber on myself at 24 years old. Wow. Okay. Um, and then... Uh, Why, I'm just curious, though, before you continue, what was it that was going on in your life that caused you to, to seek answers in those places, though? You know, I mean, like... Were you just unhappy with your situation, or were you were you did, were you experiencing negative feelings? What was going I was going I was going into the abyss of what's called mental illness. Mm. My real biological father's got he's dead now, but he had schizophrenia. Mm. He's paranoid schizophrenic. I see. A lot of people in my family were, were alcoholics. Right. Okay. Uh, I was going down that road. No no doubt about it. I was heading down that road. I was literally losing my mind. Wow. Yeah. And why would I look for answers? Well, I was in AA for four years. I was clean and sober because I knew I was going to die. I'm jumping out of windows and stuff and trying to kill people, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but still, even after being clean and sober for four years, my life's still deteriorating. My mind is literally deteriorating. Mm. And, you know, people can see it. You know, I'm not back. I'm not drinking. I'm not doing, I, I can, I'm holding the job. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not drinking alcohol, Right. Um, going to AA, doing those things, but my mind is, I'm losing it, totally losing it. And there's no answer. There was literally no, here's a pill. This is the answer. Okay, great. It stabled me out for a while, but I still, I still going down. So when, when you say that though, I mean, I've talked to quite a few people who've experienced, you know, I've had, I have some people in my family who've experienced uh, severe depression or bipolar disease. My uncle was on lithium as well. Um, my brother had some experience with that as well. And, you know, when, when my uncle was on that stuff, man, he was unrecognizable. Like, I don't even know how he functioned, but somehow he ran a multi-million dollar business, you know, so I can only imagine how sharp he was before he was on that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, like when you say I'm losing my mind, what does that actually look like? Like, what are, can you remember what your thoughts were or like what was going through? Oh yeah. Head? Well, sure. Yeah. I wanted to kill myself. Huh. Mm. Okay, I uh, know that. Um, not that I acted on it, but um, you know, as a total failure as a as a as a husband, mm. failure as a man, losing a marriage. Anybody that's ever been any man that's been divorced, he won't tell you that. Right. That I uh, failed as a man, but they feel like that. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, I'm living in a in a dump. Mm. My it's. 
the sewer would back up through, <laughs> you'll appreciate this, <laughs> through the tub and the toilet. Oh, no. Black water. Oh, no. And we would just mop it up and put towels on the carpet because we didn't know any better. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not getting anywhere in life. I'm making $8 an hour. I'm running a little duplicator printing press. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to run my own business on the side, too, as a printer. Sure. You know, not getting anywhere. I mean, even in, you know, even in that little slummy place, I had a little printing tabletop printing press in there, right? Because I, I would do printing for the pizza place up the street, right? I would trade out pizza for printing. Mm. Okay. Uh, but I still, there was just, uh, it's like there's what, I'm 24 years old. What hope do I have? Right. Okay. Um, I think probably the worst part was just the way I treated Ann. You know, that really... When I look back on it, that really that's that's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I mean, it, I think that's uh, something that a lot of men struggle with. I know I've struggled with. It. And you look at your results, right? What are my results in life? Am I doing as well as I thought I could, or am I living up to my own potential, or know what I'm capable of? And when that answer is no, man, it's hard to take. Yeah, it's uh, but this is this is deeper than um, hard to take. So one day. Um, I'm sitting in a meeting of AA and I'm sitting there and the guy sits down next to me. I say, you know, God's really cooked up a beautiful day. And he says, well, who's your God? I said, well, the guy that made everything. So he told me about Jesus and what Jesus planned for my life was mm-hmm. a week later. Uh, I get born again. I repent of my sin, ask Jesus to forgive me, make him king of my life. And my life's changed in an instant. That was on a Saturday. I went off the lithium cold turkey, put it away, never went back. Went to the counselor I was seeing on Monday, said, I don't need this anymore. She says, well, I'll keep it for you just in case. Uh, and so I've never looked back. And so uh, has it all been a bed of roses? No. Okay, I guess I live in a real world. Uh, but that's the most radical change that's ever been happened in my life. And that aligns me back with with God's plan for my life. And that's why Ann and I have a life that we never could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Never in a million years. Mm-hmm. Never. I'd we'll be married 30, into this year, 37 years. And wow. It is. Yeah. Congratulations, man. That's a, yeah. that's a yeah. gold standard in, in the modern world for sure. Yeah. Well, considering at one time, um, so I was a Christian for three years before she became born again, before she got saved. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was such a bad person. Um, when I got saved, and my conversion was so radical, she threw everything I owned in that apartment out the front door and told me to get out. Really? Yeah, and so the Bible talks about in Corinthians about believers and unbelievers and about how a believer cannot leave the unbeliever. So I'm like, I'm going to live my life like that. And I told her, she goes, I want out. I want you to leave. I'm like, honey, the Bible says that the believer cannot leave the unbeliever. I'm bringing my stuff back into the apartment. I said, if you want to leave, you can leave, but I'm not leaving. She gets in a car and leaves. <laughs> Happened twice. Because she, because she could not believe the person that I would have been. Because we had known each other from since we were 19. I was 24 and I got saved. Right. So so is it like, am I understanding that basically she thought you were putting on an act? Or she just Probably didn't believe so. that this was really you? Or what's going on? Well, the I don't, I've never heard her say she felt like I was putting on an act. Mm-hmm. What she does say is that when I left... Uh, and came back that night, I was a totally different person, and she could see it. Mm. And if you were to ask her that, that's what she'd tell you. Right. right. Um, so, I mean, in her religious 
background, what I was saying didn't really jive anymore. Mm. You know, all of a sudden I want you think about the, how, how different that is. Get out of there, get out. I'm, I don't want you. I want this other woman and I'm keeping the kids. So I'm going to destroy your life. And then three weeks later, you're like, uh, you can leave if you want. I'm not leaving. Right. Think about that. That's pretty radical. You know, and even before I got saved, she would, she would, she had a driving job. She said, God, you got to do something with this guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he did something and she's like, whoa. And so that's, you know, that's uh, pretty radical. You know, that's a very, that's the pivotal thing of both of our lives. Right. We right. built our lives on, on that. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's interesting. I think a lot of folks hear that in the modern world, you know, I think a lot of times Christianity gets a bad rap because it's like the familiar religion, mm-hmm. right? But if you had a similar experience in say, you know, Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know, something along that lines, it would be like, oh, now you're some spiritual, you know, magnate who's capable of witnessing to masses and changing lives <laughs> with a wave of your hand, right? But because Christianity is the domestic familiar religion, it's, it's some, sometimes discounted, I think. Well, it's discounted, yeah. It's discounted because people don't live the life, too. Oh, for sure, for you sure. Know, yeah. You know, um, people that know me, you know, if I was uh, to be in a bar drinking mm-hmm. and they look at my life and like, oh, you're just like everybody else. Just a hypocrite, buddy. Yeah, that's what they, and they would write, and that's their right to think that. Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is the common, quote, common religion of America, right. you know. Um, but, you know, Jesus says he's the only way. People can't handle that. I didn't say it. He did. There you go. Right on, brother. So obviously this was a radical shift in the relationship and you guys are still together today. Obviously 37 years, three kids. If I'm Yeah, we got three, we have three kids now. Three kids. So you did something right. You guys, you guys, you guys did something right to stay together. I mean, yeah. that's just, that's an achievement in and of itself. Well, yeah. And it's, uh, because we work at it. Right. You know, um, great thing about being, a Christian is the man knows he has to lead. Mm-hmm. It's not an option. That's right. You better do it well. There you go. But we got a manual that teaches, it's called the Bible. It tells us how to do it. <laughs> so we don't have to figure it out. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's, that's why we have what we have. Good stuff, brother. Well, I know that, um, you know, you came into my world, uh, looking for fitness, looking mm-hmm. for, looking to change your, uh, your physique, um, the way that you saw yourself and, and to up your fitness game. And it's been quite a few years now, I think. And, you know, there's been a few changes in you and also Anne now. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, and we had this conversation at the gym one day. We were talking about, you know, people going through that middle part of life, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and how a lot of times there's a tendency to just sort of give up and give in and allow your body to just deteriorate and fall by the wayside, you know. And yet you chose not to do that. And and you brought Anne in later. And and she's chosen in on that as well. So what was it that brought you to that point in your life where you thought, you know what, I want to take care of my body. I want to honor my body and and do what's right by my body and uh, create some longevity or some fitness for myself. Yeah, so uh, my mom has diabetes. My grandfather died. He was a diabetic. Uh, They were going to cut his leg off. Mm. And he died. The the surgery was going to be the next day, and he died that night. Wow. Uh, I have an uncle. Uh, He's on a pump. And, uh, you know, when you see that, you know, that's kind of what's waiting for you if you keep going a certain way. Right. Okay. Um, so I tried to, I tried different things, you know, I go to, 
go to the to the gym. You know, you pay ten bucks a month, right? Because I wanted. I was like, I'm not going to end up like that. I'm not, I can't. You know, I can see it coming. Um, but I would keep getting hurt, and I'm like, well, forget this. I mean, this is not worth it. I can't even barely do my job. Right. I owned a restoration company at that time, and I had to move a lot of equipment. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get stronger, so I was. But I was getting hurt, so I'm like. But the worst part about it is I didn't know why. I didn't know what was going on, what was causing me that. So, you know, I go on the internet, you know, um, I buy the, I get shredded thing, you know, for 40 bucks. And I told my kids, I always want to have a six pack. I want to have a six pack. Don't hold me that. Okay. <laughs> and so. Uh, Pretty much got one now, man. <laughs> and so. Uh, and then uh, in a health checkup at the VA, they found out I have Graves disease, that I had Graves disease. And what Graves' disease is, it's when you're hyperthyroid. So your thyroid puts out more than it's supposed to. Mine was four times more than normal. Um, And what's interesting is because the thyroid controls everything in your body, they can't give you a specific date when it started. So I think about that's the next question. Everybody goes, well, do you think that the thyroid thing might have had something to do with everything else? I'm like, I don't know. So you have, I was given three options uh, for the thyroid. Uh, number one is the radiation. Take the radiation pill. Lock yourself in a room for three days. Don't go near anybody because you'll hurt them because of radiation coming out of your body. You can take this medication, and these are the side effects. Uh, or, you know, you can do nothing, and your life's going to deteriorate. I said, well, give me the radiation pill. Now every natural path is like, they're like, Right now, they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you did that, right? Because they told me not to do that. Um, And then, you know, but I said, you know, I just got to do this. So I just made the decision. I made the decision. I had this is what I'm going to do. So I did that. And then um, the thyroid levels come down. And as the thyroid levels come down, uh, emotions happen. Things, emotions called emotional liability. That's part of it. It What's interesting is when you have high thyroid levels, you can have emotional uh, liability which means sometimes you you just start crying for no reason. And then as it goes all the way down, when you bottom out, people have a low thyroid, have emotional liability. It's kind of interesting kind of thing. Uh, so as, it, as, as the levels went down, then they had to give me medication to bring it back up to stabilize it. And then they do it in steps. But as it, they were doing those steps, I was gaining weight. Okay. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, and I thought, well, you know, I make a product where I can you know, teach people, you know, I'll get in shape and I'll teach people how to, you know, get fit without having to go to a gym, you know, I'll make a product and I can put it online and all this stuff. Sure. And so, uh, but I was gaining weight again, like 30 pounds in a year. Wow. Right. I'm blowing up, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I'm, I'm eating. Okay. You know, I'm not just eating. At least it's, I can control it now. Sure. And, uh, so I said, well, I got to do something radical. I'm like, what's the most radical thing? I guess the radical thing I could do is go join a CrossFit because, you know, I always thought that's like pretty radical. And I didn't know it. It's just interesting. I didn't know anything about it. I just heard about it. And I'm like, that's about as radical as you can get. And, and I tell everybody I was really nervous because you go to CrossFit, they're going to turn you into a paleo-eating Neanderthal. <laughs> you know, I mean, and it, I mean, that's really what I thought, you know, the big, the big ridge above the eyes, you know, yeah. you're all skinny, you know, like, right? Right. But it's interesting. <laughs> Cause I got to the point I didn't care mm-hmm. because uh, I got kids. I want to see my grandkids. I'm 50, 53 at the time, I think. And, uh, you know, Ann and I kind of like to believe we're going to live to be 120. 
Okay. Um, well, if I'm 53, I'm not even at midlife yet. That's right. Yeah, and I'm halfway. going through this. So what am I going to do? And so I walked into the CrossFit North Phoenix, walked in there, um, contacted you. They set it up with the uh, evaluation, and the evaluation about killed me. I'm doing this thing. I'm like, and finally I'm like, um, and Corey was doing the evaluation, and I just stopped. He goes, you okay? I said, I cannot do anymore. <laughs> can't do anymore. I'm just laying on the ground on my back, and I'm like, I can't do anything anymore. Right. And then, uh, so then I came back the next day, because they had three day, the three-day trial thing. Mm-hmm. And on the second day, I just, here's my card, sign me up. Right. Because I liked everything that I saw. Because, uh, number one, there's people helping. Okay. Um, there, so I get instruction. And uh, the coach at the time, Mary. I mean, I'm trying to do sit-up or push-ups, right? And I can't I'm barely do them anymore. And she's down there doing it with me, you know. Um, and then one other time. We're doing this, these workouts, and I don't know. I got to understand. I don't know anything. I don't know nothing about nothing. And we're doing these sit-ups, and there's programmed to do a hundred sit-ups in one day. I'm not even to CrossFit for a week or two, and I'm like hundred sit-ups. And I'm, we were in the army. I can do it. I thought I could do, but I'm like I'm doing twenty-five, and I'm done. I'm like, oh. I'm like I can't do another one. So CJ, he's the coach then, and there's two other kids there. They did all their hundred, and next thing you know, they go, "Come on, Alan, we'll help you." And I'm like, "How can you help do sit-ups?" So I do one, they're doing one. Next thing I know, I'm doing it, and they're doing it. After they did their 100, they do 75 more. <laughs> I said, that's a pretty cool place. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of what, you know, got me in to, because I really wanted to be healthy mm-hmm. because I seen, and then I, and in my business, I sit with people. I sit with people that are 60 years old pulling oxygen tanks, you know. Um, they, a lot of them have given up, you know. Some of them are, they got the power chairs. Right. And they're 100 pounds overweight, and they got diabetes. They weren't born that way. What happened was they got diabetes somewhere, and they're like, well, I guess this is it. And they give up, and then they get fat. They get big, and they get big, and they get big. And it's not, it's not an overweight fat. It's a sick fat because, they're, because of what's going on with their bodies. And the worst thing about it is it's totally controllable. You have to put some effort into that. You know, and I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going, you know, being in the army and stuff, you know, you're trained for PT and so, so they kind of ingrain that in you. And I used to do sports and different things. So I probably had a bent towards that anyway. Right. But all I knew is that, um, I was not, I just, I had to do something. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's when I made the, hooked up with you guys. Yeah, that's cool, man. They, uh, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people have that impression that you come to CrossFit and you're going to get killed. And the reality of it is, is anything can be scaled to meet you where you are, you know, no matter where you're at, no matter what your condition. And I think, you know, CrossFit switched their game plan because of that. I, that understanding that people were holding, you know, if you show up the first day, we're going to be climbing a rope legless, you know, and it's (laughs) like, no, that's not how it works. You know, you you see these guys on TV and it's just not reality, but yeah, you stuck with it, man. And and your results have been phenomenal. I mean, your physique has changed drastically. Your strength has gone through the roof. Your endurance is, is just crazy. And I'm wondering if the people in your circle, you know, the people that you come in contact with, if they're noticing that. And if, and if so, you know, what kind of conversations are you guys having around fitness, you know, with other, say, 50-year-olds? Well, I uh, remember one conversation I had with a guy. I hadn't seen him in about a year and a half. He says, I was expecting you to be 200 pounds walking in the door. Oh, really? 
Like, nope. He had already given up on you for yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. How generous of you know, him. Um, and so people in my sphere at the time, you know, they're going to silver shoes, or whatever, silver, whatever the, the insurance silver company, sneakers. Yeah. The insurance company pay for it, whatever. Right. Um, the $10 thing, mm-hmm. this wearing the thing that counts your steps, right? All that stuff. Watching sometimes what they eat, you know, I can't eat that. Right. Um, and so I'm like, Hey, you, you know, well, what do you pay for that? And I said, this time too. And they're like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, well, it's going to be ridiculous when you're pushing a walker and I'm not, <laughs> you have a choice. You can move a barbell or you can move in a walker. It's your choice, <laughs> you know? Um, and so a lot of them, they just, they, they literally just give up or they try to find an easier way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, it's 80% is what you, of, of your fitness is what you put in your mouth. Yeah, that's true, but come on. I mean, there's other things you've got to do because, because I think a lot of times people equate fitness with the body. Right. Period. Mm-hmm. When, what I've learned at CrossFit, I've learned life lessons in CrossFit. Um, because I'm kind of a guy that likes to let's commit first and figure it out later. Right. Right. Which is, but in CrossFit, what it's taught me is to slow down and things, you know, because you know, you, you think you can, I think I can lift this and I go to lift it and I get it up there and I'm like, and it comes, I'm like, I don't feel so good all of a sudden. Right. So I've had to learn to scale things back, mm-hmm. listen to people who know what they're doing do exactly what they say and then I'll be okay and I'll get better. And so I've tried to take those things that I've learned in the gym and apply them to my life. Right. The other products that I'm working on right now, like a year ago, it would like, I have this done. I got to have this done. I got to get this done. Now it's just like, you know what? There's a process that has to go through and you have to go through that process. No matter what you got to get this thing done, then you can do this thing. And so I don't, I think people just think it's all about, you know, doing push-ups lifting barbells, you know, whatever else they think CrossFitters do, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think that's why they give up because they, th- they think it's all physical. Right. You know, there's nothing to worry, you know. I mean, um, you know, at this time here, uh, i give you an example. So Ann and I, we changed churches, and that's a pretty radical thing. Um, so we left on a Sunday night, and that was our last service there. And I had went to the gym on Monday and I could not even barely lift a barbell weight. I could just throw around like nothing and I couldn't even hardly lift it. Okay. So that's a life lesson right there. It's just like, you better pay attention to how you feel Mm -hmm. because that affects the rest of your life. You see that effect. And people don't think that about fitness. They don't think about that. They think it's about, you know, looking like Arnold there. That's what everybody thinks that doesn't work out, you know? I could be, that could be too general, but you know, um, but the people that have been around me, they, they, it's kind of like, they don't get it. You know, it's kind of, well, that's good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know, when I, when I grab a piece of pizza and chicken wings, I don't feel bad, but they think I should feel bad. Well, you work out like, yeah, pass the cake. <laughs> okay. But that's what the deal is. They think that's not a lifestyle anymore. Right. That's enjoyment of life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't have to worry about having to stick a needle in my stomach or a pump because I'm doing this stuff. Right. You know, 
and change the way I, I live life. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the word fitness. It's interesting when you think about fitness, you know, it really just comes down to understanding what that word means. You know, 80% of what you put in your mouth might change the way you look, but doesn't necessarily make you fit. Like you can be perfectly thin, you know, have a great physique and completely be unfit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the world who are that way, but fitness just comes down to your capabilities. You know, what are you fit for is the question, right? Are you, are you able to, you know, walk the mall or pick up your grandkids or whatever the thing is, you know, what are you fit to do? And if the answer to those, to the question, to the thing that you want to do is no, then it's time to start moving. Yep. And if you don't know how to move, like you said, you're going to get injured or do something I remember my, too uh, much too soon. My first uh, summer, the gym, it wasn't even the first full summer, maybe halfway through the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was helping a lady move. And this is the middle of the summer. We got a U-Haul and everyone else is, they're dying. I'm just like, Wow, I can do this. It's 115 <laughs> degrees out, and that's just not bothering me. Right. Where, but you got to remember, six months I couldn't go. I couldn't even hold a drill over my head. Wow. A power drill over my head anymore. Wow. Right. So that's pretty pretty spectacular that to is, me. That's amazing. You that's know, amazing. The, you know, and there's a lot of people who say, "Well, I can't lift the power drill up. I guess I'll hire somebody to do it." Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about like little simple things, right? Like, okay, maybe you have to you know, run a drill over your head, which is a strenuous activity, no matter who you are, especially depending on how long you're holding it over your head. But at the same token, if you just look at some folks walking up a a short little staircase, not even a flight of stairs, but just a short staircase and they get to the top and they're totally winded. Yeah. You know, that right there ought to tell you something. And so the, the question that I struggle with is how do I reach out to, or what do I say to people in that age bracket, you know, to get them to try, you know, to even to, to make an effort, you know, what's been your experience? Have you had any luck with conversations around, you uh, know, stepping outside of what people think that they know and into maybe a gym or, or the or biggest one is my wife. Oh, I mean, for that's, sure. That's the for biggest, sure. that's the biggest one. Um, I have other, I had a friend that had a stroke, um, uh, a year ago in January and, uh, he was 200 pounds overweight. Mm-hmm got those big red spots on his ankles, you know, the water seeping out of his ankles. Ugh. Okay. And we're like, dude, you need to do something. Just go walk. That's all you got to do is just walk around the block, get, you know. Um, and he had a stroke. He lost 100 pounds hmm. because he had to, he couldn't exercise. He, he lost a lot of his right side. Right. But he couldn't exercise. All he could control is what he ate. And it's interesting. He just stopped eating eating on a regular basis and he lost a hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, within four or five months, might not have been the most healthiest thing probably, but there's, he's losing muscle, but ass and everything else. Sure. Um, but it was interesting. We would try to tell him that, you know, I would, t- other guys in my sphere at that time would say, what's that gym kind of like, you know, I said, well, you can come check it out, you know, but what happens is people get in a way of life and they get stuck in that rut and they can't, and <laughs> When you understand, when a person understands how the brain works, right? So the amygdala, when you go to do something different, fires up in fear because that, that's its job is to protect us. Right. And people think, oh my gosh. There's, they don't even realize it. They don't realize that that's what's going on. And so I think that's, to answer your question, I haven't had a lot of success on that mm-hmm. because when I talk to people, they, they're, really, they're really set in their life. And they're really settled into their life. And it takes something really radical, you know, to change that, I think. But then the guy, 
you know, the guy had a, my friend had a stroke and all of a sudden he wants to work out right. to try to save what his other half. Yeah, it's uh, inspiration or desperation. And unfortunately, most people come from desperation, yeah. it seems. But I think uh, just instilling in people that it's a lifestyle, you know, I think we went from a largely agrarian society 100 years ago where people did physical labor all day, every day, you know, in, in large numbers to a society where free time multiplied tremendously, you know, and then we had entertainment in our living rooms. And so we come home from whatever it is that we do and we sit and we sit and we sit and we probably sat all day at work in this day and age and, and the body just deteriorates. It's amazing how many young people, like I get, I get the, the, the disconnect from uh, maybe a couple generations older than me. I'm 46. So I get that disconnect because that was never really part of life. Like taking care of your body. You were lucky to live you know, past 50, 60 years old, you know, or at least that's what people thought. And they worked, you know, long hours in doing hard things. And so their bodies were pretty much fit. You know, my mm-hmm. great, great grandparents lived into their nineties and all they did was, you know, eat bacon and work in the field, you know? So, but, but today I see younger people who spent so much time behind a screen, you know, they're soft, they're gooey, they're just completely out of shape you ask them to do anything in the gym, like even during an assessment, like a short assessment, and you'll see them get really winded or really off balance very easily. And so I don't think that there is a cap on this, you know, sort of age group thing. I think there's just a cap or or maybe an opportunity to expand people's understanding of what fitness really is, because it really needs to be a lifestyle, not something that you do because you're in desperation. Because at that point, a lot of times it's too late. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it, it comes down to what causes people to want to make a change in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I became a Christian, it's like God showed me my sin. I knew I needed to make a change, and He was gracious enough to change my life and forgive me. You know, people want to get fit. You know, they got to. What causes them? To, what what's the what's the outside force that's causing them to change? You know, there's some always something that's external. It's like you said. No one wakes up and say, hey, I want to become a Christian this Sunday morning. Nobody wakes up and goes, hey, I'm going to go to CrossFit today, 5 o'clock in the morning. Right. Okay. But what causes them to want to, to want to be able to make that change? I think that's very critical. You know, do you want to see your grandkids? You know, um, and the young kids, you know, they don't, they don't know necessarily any different, just the way they've been raised. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it takes, you know, they may not even understand their ooey and gooey, right? As you put it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if they walk yeah. into a gym and they, you know, they have to learn how to take instruction from an authority figure. So, just the fact that they need to make a change is not necessarily enough, right? There's they got to have what's causing it or the big you know the big why, right? Because because if they don't if they don't have a reason. At five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, or four thirty when it's one hundred and fifteen out, mm-hmm. they're not going to want to do it. No, that's true, one hundred percent. Yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, what causes them to want to have to do that? They got to have a change, right? You know, and that uh, in my in my age group, you know, that's uh, my heart goes out to them a lot because it doesn't have to be that way. They don't have to be in the in the power chair. You know, they don't have to necessarily have the oxygen. Um, I was in a group last night and I'm, uh, I'm looking at the group and three of them are overweight. 
by at least 50 pounds, maybe even 60. And one's like, you know, I got sleep apnea. The other guy's, well, I might have a touch of it. And the other lady like, yeah, well, I got it too. I got on a machine. And I'm like, you know, I don't, I'm not a doctor. Seems to me a lot of people who have sleep apnea are overweight. Okay. So it's easier to hook a machine up than sleep with a machine all night? I guess so. But it didn't have to be that way. Yeah, and you're asking people to do something versus to have something done to them. That's the big difference, right? We live in a pill-based culture. Give me the pill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, get, just give me the pill. <laughs> Solve my problem for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't want to actually have to have any discipline around solving it myself. Yeah, so the biggest thing would be the question I would ask you. So what, what, is it, what have you seen that it takes people to change? I've seen vastly, uh, in completely disproportionate numbers, vastly that it, it, it skews toward desperation. It's people want something desperately um, versus being inspired you know, I think people look at, you know, like, like someone your age would come to the gym and look at you working out with your shirt off, see your physique and go, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> right. But if they don't want that for themselves, there's nothing that I can do or say to make them want that. Mm -hmm. And if I do, it's only going to be a temporary fix because motivation is BS. So at the end of the day, what does this person want to create? Well, maybe they don't want to look good naked as much as they want to be able to pick up their grandchild or... Mm -hmm you know, walk to the car or not have to use the handicap sticker or whatever the thing is. Right. But until I know what their driver is, there's really nothing that I can do or say. So my first question is always, what do you want? It comes back to what you said earlier. What do you want? <laughs> you know, tell me what you want. Tell me why you want it. And we'll figure out a way to get you there. Mm -hmm. But when it gets hard, I think it's on the onus falls onto the person to remember their why, because at the end of the day, that motivation has to come from within. Yeah, especially like, you know, like we talked about things being boring. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, absolutely. There's times I've been I'm like, I'm thoroughly bored. Totally. I'm like, you know, do I need to, maybe I'll, just, but then I'm like, do I really want to come back? I'm like, yeah, I'm getting kind of bored. But so then I just change it up. Right. So what's the new challenge? What do I got to find the challenge? Because I know it's waiting. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I tell people, I pay my CrossFit bill before I pay my rent. Right. <laughs> because if I'm not fit, then I can't pay my rent, right? That's it. That's the way I look at it. That's it. You have to invest in yourself. And it's not just an investment in, you know, uh, your sanity and your friendships and, and all those sorts of things. It's an investment in your physical body. That's what enables us to traverse this world. So, yeah, it's a huge thing. I think the boredom piece, we talked about this at length, is super key. And I, I've been a victim of this before. I have a have access to a, a pretty stellar gymnastics program. And to be honest with you, I'm not as regular with it as I want to be because it's boring. But when I do it, man, I feel so good. My body is so limber and strong. It, it impacts everything I do in the gym to a much higher degree. But the training is just boring. And it comes down to that story that weightlifting coach told about, you know, when it comes down to getting to the best of the best, it just really comes down to who can handle the boredom of training. But really, it's like choose your boredom, right? If people come home from work, and what do they do? They flip on TV. some useless <laughs> show on TV that they're already bored by or they've seen before or it's some nightly news that's exactly the same as the news before. And they sit there, and they're bored, but they're watching it because they don't have to actually do anything. No, nope, that's right. So it's like choose your boredom, man. Like, you know, do so. If you're going to be bored, you know, go be bored walking around the block, you know, whatever the thing is. But don't sit there and vegetate and become nothing. Yeah, well, um, you know, if you're 
uh, you're sick, you're going to be bored. You're going to be laying in the bed. You're be very bored. It's pretty bored. <laughs> you have a stroke and you can't walk around the block. You're going to be bored. Pretty bored, yeah. You know, and uh, it's about what people want, you know, out of their life. So, so the thing about fitness, the problem with fitness, I'll tell you what I feel like the problem with fitness me. really is. Uh, it's the Insta lies. You know, the Instagram lies, right? Right. Um, it's all the guys that advertise on Buff and being Mr. Buff. Mm-hmm. The average person, number one, they feel negative about themselves in the first place. Sure. So number two, they look at that and they say, like, how am I going to do that? Like, I bought the shredded program. So I think I'd like to give that a try, <laughs> you know, right? But with no direction. Okay. And so people see all that. But when you walk into a gym, not everybody's like that. But right. people, that's why people won't go into the gym, why they don't want to go. They'd rather pay $10 with no instructions so no one holds them accountable. Right. No one's looking at them. There's, no one can train them. Um, but when they see what the, uh, I call it the smokiness of fitness, the smoky environment of fitness, um, because every day, is, this is from my perspective. Now, I'm not a trained professional, but from my perspective, things change every day, it seems like. You know, coconut oil today is the best thing for you. Coconut oil is the worst thing for you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Eggs are good for you. Eggs aren't good for you. Right. Okay. Uh, and so what happens is that builds into people a distrust of that industry. Right. So I'm looking at it now from a business perspective. So when you have a distrust of an industry, people aren't going to want to go to that industry. Sure. Okay. Um, and so what, what, what needs to happen in that industry, it needs to change to show people, hey, you don't have to look like the ripped guy. I mean, I'm not a ripped guy, right? But you know what? I can I can do things I couldn't do, okay? And I don't have to look like that guy. Right. That's on and on the Instagram thing, right? That's I right. don't have to look like him, right? But the kid that's 20 years old, that's gooey, looks at that and goes, I could never be like that. Oh, yeah. Because he, it's, it's like, I think it's like if a guy wants to be a millionaire, and he hasn't made a hundred thousand dollars. It's like, I'll never be a million. How do I, I don't know how to make a hundred thousand dollars. How can I be a millionaire? Right. Okay. How can, how can I do 14 pull-ups when I, you know, gosh, I can't even, I can't barely get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And so that distrust in the industry, there's gotta be a way that that gets removed. And I think, um, like CrossFit, I think with it's with coach Glassman's kind of changed that back around a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, which is good. I don't know all the ins and outs, but I do know that CrossFit originally was for common people and, you know, and the, and competition's good. People are in gyms are cause they're competitive. Sure. Okay. Even the gooey kids competitive cause he can build a program better than somebody else. Right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And so I think when they get, can illuminate and get rid of some of that smokiness, you know, if, if there was really some good standards and I think that's what they try to do with, uh, it's not a commercial, but um, the coaching training, the L1, 2, 3, and 4 training is ANSI certified. That's a big deal because that's a standardization code that any training has to meet right. in order to be ANSI certified. Mm-hmm. When I was in the restoration business, we went to classes that was ANSI certified, exact same company, organization for that. And I think if there was more of that, then people would uh, be more open to being becoming fit, mm-hmm. you know, and then being able to learn the life lessons that come, 
come out of that. Yeah, I think that I, th- I agree with you. I, I think that taking that one step further, it also comes down to this idea that we really live in a headline-based culture. You know, you, you see the headline of, you know, like the Time Magazine cover that you mentioned earlier where eggs are bad, man. Eggs are bad. They're terrible. Now eggs are good, man. They're good. They're great yeah. for you. But if you read both those articles or if you actually look at the research, the research is generally underwhelming. Like it's like, oh, eggs caused this tiny fraction of, of a percentage point of a tiny fraction of a percentage point of people to have X, Y, Z result. Mm-hmm. It's generally underwhelming, right? And the reality is that's very boring. Nobody wants to read that. Mm-hmm. But if I post a picture of, you know, Johnny Sixpack or, you know, Little Miss, um, you know, Sexy Bud over here, then that's going to get a lot of attention. And it doesn't force people actually into doing that boring work, that, that's right. that reading work. And I th- so I think that a lot of it comes down to just finding people in the right frame of mind, someone who's had enough, you know, and are ready to make a change and willing to commit. Because if they don't, you know, if they're only in there for a short period of time, they're going to get short period of time results. And that's not really beneficial. They might walk away with some knowledge. They might walk away with some movement tips and techniques. But are they going to execute that if they quit? Are they going to execute that on their own? Probably not. Yeah, and I think part of, of removing that, uh, that, that smokiness, like I'll give you, well, like I read an article, because uh, I'll read some of those headlines and I'll go, I'll delve into the article. Mm-hmm. It was about putting ice on an injury. Sure. And I read, the, I read the whole entire article. Now, that's one article. And it was all, it's not necessarily, there's no scientific studies that prove that that's good for you. Right. It comes from a guy who got his arm cut off and they put his arm in a, in an ice chest and they hooked it up and then hooked him back, sewed it back on and it worked. Oh, put ice on everything. That's it. And so I'm like, so clearing that away, get some kind of standardization in that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Really exactly. There was in to, to that. That's really interesting that you bring that up because just a couple of years ago, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Kelly Starrett. You know, he did the, all of the supple leopard. I have his all, book. Yeah, there you go. And so he was at the CrossFit Games with uh, a gentleman who was talking about that very thing. And he was talking about ice and why you shouldn't ice an injury. And his argument was that when you do that, it shuts down the lymphatic system. Because the lymphatic system doesn't really have a way to move, you know, um, um, material from one part of the body to another unless you're moving. So if you've moved, if you've immobilized a joint and then you've put ice on it, you've basically shut down the lymph system, which is going to, you know, inhibit your healing. So it it came down to, all right, well, it's good for acute injuries, but it's not good for long-term type stuff. You need to move. So that's why I always say movement is medicine. So, and so the average guy, um, the average person doesn't really matter their age. They, they see that. Right. And they're like, what the hell do I believe? You know, or or if you get involved in that, and then it's then it's like, you know, everybody's got their th- their way of doing things. Sure. You know, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. You know, uh, when I injured my back, um, I thought, wow, my back's really messed up. You know, then I found out what it was, mm-hmm. and I got treated for it, and it's because of my it was my lousy form. Okay. But I tried to fix it for six weeks on my own by reading things on the internet. <laughs> okay, Doctor Google. So that's what what people see. The average person, the average, you know, the average person doesn't do doesn't do fitness for a living. Right. Actually, I think my own opinion is that people want to work out. They want to kind of feel good. And they can have their pizza, wings, and beer on the weekend and not feel guilty. <laughs> 
there's a lot of truth in that okay. for sure. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Um, and I think sometimes people think that their quote the quote lifestyle of the thing means you have to do this, 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 and this forever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, who wants to do something? That's that regimented forever. We're not built for that. Yeah, it just depends on your goals, right? Like if, if you're, like you said, the average guy and you're having five days of quality food and movement and you have a couple of days a week where it's not so great, it's not the end of the world, right? And if that's your goal and you're comfortable with that, cool. But if you want to, you know, lose weight, it matters. If you want to compete, it matters, right? It just depends on your purpose and your goal. And so just because you come into the gym, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to give up every aspect of your life that you enjoy. But I think a lot of it comes down to as well as people misunderstand the idea of reward. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm going to reward myself with a cheat day. Yeah. Well, what are you actually doing when you're cheating? Yeah. You're, you're actually hurting yourself. Yeah. And I, I, it's not really a reward, is it? I tell people, I, I mean, um, I've done some, I've done a, a whole 30 challenge mm-hmm. and all that. And, um, um, I don't even use the word cheat day. Uh, when people say, oh, I guess a cheat day, I just say, you know what, you might do yourself a favor by not saying that. And then want, immediately they want to know why. Mm-hmm. That's because that brings a picture in your mind. So on a day you're taking the day off, now you feel bad. Right. Come on, enjoy what you're doing. <laughs> you know, you can take care. It's not, it's not like you. <laughs> so when, when, when I go to the gym, and I see guys that are really fit. There's a few of them that are like, I'm like, dude, man, you're like, you're really good. You're really good. They're 36 years old. Right. I'm 50. I'll be 56. There's 20 years of under the bridge. That's right. But I could look like that if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I know it. But I choose not to do that. I just choose to, to so I can be healthy. Right. Okay. And I think if, if the industry would market itself in that vein that it would open up a lot more. Yeah. Right. To open up that, that you can be what you want to be, not what we want you to be. Right. Right. So like a coach, if a coach wants somebody that are coaching to be something that they don't know what that person wants to be. So they're, they want them to be like them. Mm -hmm. Well, that defeats the purpose of the coach of coaching. That's and right. what that's going to do is going to alienate that person. That person is going to leave and say, oh, you know, I tried. You know, I tried to do that, but, you know, they wanted me to do fill in the blank. Right. And maybe they weren't ready. No, that's a great point. We talk about this a lot at the coaches meetings or trainers meetings. You know, we talk about what enrollment means, you know, and it's enrollment is, you know, getting someone to do what you want them to do, but for their reasons. Right. So if, if I want you in the gym, right, I need to know why you're there. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a discussion around what your purpose there is and, and gear everything towards you being there. But if I don't, if I'm selfish, like what you're talking about, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're yeah. going to alienate people and people are going to drop like flies. And just, it, it's completely self-defeating. Yeah. And so I think like when I first started going to the gym, uh, it's probably normal for people, but I got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of attention. And I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. So then when you, when I learned the movements and I learned the things to do, that attention kind of went away. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then other people are getting that. And it's like, now what do you do? Mm-hmm. Am I here because I want this attention? Oh, you're doing so good. Oh, your form's so great. Oh, you're doing so good. I'm so proud of you. 
right? Or are you there because you know, you know what what's waiting for you outside the door if you don't if you don't come back, right? And just being able to have people understand that they can be what they what they want to be. I mean, when I talk with you, can I do two a days? I have no idea what I'm talking about when we first talked on the phone. Like, can I do two? Uh, you could, but I really wouldn't recommend that you do that. <laughs> so I go for a year. A couple of times I go for two a day. I want to give it a shot. And then there are the easy workouts, right? Because we all know that there are. And I'm like, I'm like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> you know? But now you have that reputation. Like people see you and they're like, well, is this your second time today? <laughs> yeah. It's your well, second time today, right? I'm a junkie. There you go. You know? And so, but it's because, it's because I've understood that I can be what fit is what I want to be. If I want to look like Joe Sixpack, I could. Mm-hmm. But what causes me not to want? Because I don't want to commit to that. Right. Because I know it's work to do that. So I'm satisfied. This is going to sound horrible, but I'm satisfied where where I'm at. Do I want to get better? Yeah. But do I want to get like the, Mr. You know, some of the guys that look really good in the gym? No. Right. No, because I don't want to do that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's cool. That's yeah, okay. It's totally okay. And, and that's, you know, just again, what is your reason for being there? As long as your reason for being there is being fulfilled. I mean, listen, if you're moving, it's not going to be a bad thing, right. regardless of your reasons, right? If you're being influenced by people to eat a, a cleaner diet, that's not going to be a bad thing, regardless mm-hmm. of your reasons. If you, don't, if you just want to, you know, be average guy in there and, you know, do your thing, hey, more power to you. You're moving. You're probably eating better. You're hanging around people who are probably doing the same things. That's a good thing. So who am I to sit back and cast judgment on you? you yeah. Well, it's like uh, I hated black coffee growing up. In fact, I didn't drink hardly any coffee till I was an AA. Cause that's what oh, you yeah. do in AA. Right on. Um, sugar. Still don't drink coffee. Terrabino. You don't? No, no, never. No. So I used to put cream, sugar, all that stuff in there. And I was at the gym one day. And I'm talking to one of the coaches. And I said, I go, so what do you put in your coffee? Nothing. Nothing. Maybe some, maybe some coconut oil. So I go get the coconut oil thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And I chuck all the sugar right. and all the stuff that went in it. And now it's three years later, it doesn't even bother me. If I have put something in there in that coffee, I'm like, this is kind of, it doesn't taste as good, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but people think that, you know, they got to, like, they got to stop this, they got to stop that. Yep. But they, but I think if, if, again, if they're trained, if the, if the industry itself, would market itself differently. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a guy I follow on Facebook and I bought two of his programs because he's all about mobility. Right. Okay. Um, and when I do that program, I do really well. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can lift better. I can do, but all he does and he, he does two things. Number one, he concentrates on mobility, but he makes it fun. Mm-hmm. He makes it really fun and he makes fun of himself and, and, and everything. He'll do a, a, a picture, you know, on Facebook. It says, if you have a problem with this, and it shows him like squatting, mm-hmm. you'll have a problem with this. And he's got a big wad of cake, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, see, that's pretty humorous. Because So what he's able to do is build a following, sell a product in the fitness industry by, by selling the fun of it. Right. He does not compromise on everything he teaches you to do, but he makes it fun. Mm-hmm. And Science tells us that when we're in a, a fun mood, we learn 31% faster. Mm-hmm. Okay. We learn 30. So I'm working out in the gym. It's a hard workout. I'm whistling Gilligan's Island. I'm singing that to myself out loud. Sometimes people are like, what are you? They're all like, 
so but but so fitness is marketed is it's got to be really hard right do i do i want to belong to something that's really that's marketed that's really hard or do i want to belong to something that it's going to take work but these guys enjoy doing it it seems like it's a lot of fun yeah again it's just going to depend on you as an individual right what you need what levers need to be pushed for you right well it's and, and it's learning it's if they if people coming in to that industry they don't know mm-hmm. they think it's supposed because you know in school right no when you're in school and you're lifting weights in school back in the i don't know if they still do that nowadays in pe or like we did sure right but they're all like making the face right you gotta have <laughs> yeah. the face and you know yeah. and all that kind of stuff you know and just smile yeah have fun. I'm always smiling when I'm coaching and training people. It's so funny. Like they'll be suffering and I'll just walk by and smile and then I'll catch them, give a grin, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, you know, one of my favorite books this past year was David Goggins book. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, he's all about being hard. Yeah. You gotta get hard. You ready to get hard? We're going to get hard today. You know, hard, 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 yeah. hard, hard. And then there's this other kid, uh, Chad Wright, also from Georgia. And he has this saying where he says, you know, be hard when it gets hard, right? And that's more me, right? If it gets hard, okay, I'll rise to that. You know, I'll be hard when it gets hard, but I'm not going to walk around with a scowl on my face, beating myself up, right? you know, having no fun, you know, because the reality of it is, is I like to have fun just as much as the next guy. So let's have fun when it's time to have fun. Let's get serious when it's time to get serious. We'll be hard when it gets hard, you know? And so when people are in that space and I can tell that they're suffering, you know, I just walk by, I just remind him, you know, it's not the end of the world. You yeah. Know, this, this too shall pass. This workout will end. The buzzer is going to go That's off. That's it. Right. You it's know. just temporary. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But I just, it, it's just, people just, if they would just come have realize that they can be what they want to be mm-hmm. and have fun. And like you say, pay attention, you know, when it's time to be serious, you know, cause if you're lifting, you're dead lifting 225 pounds. It's not a time to be like, right. oh, this is just so wonderful. Yeah, not time to play. You need, you need to pay attention. Absolutely. You know, but it's all how you approach everything before you walk up to that bar. That's right. That's right. Get that mind right. Awesome, brother. So um, tell me a little bit about what uh, success looks like for you at this point in your life. Oh, that's a wonderful question. So first of all, I have to define success. Mm-hmm. So success, the definition of success is an accomplishment, of something that you aim for. Right. That's all it is. That's all it is. So success for me is number one is my relationship with Jesus Christ. Number one, everything else comes secondary to that. If I'm, if I'm living right, doing what he wants me to do, I'm good. That'll be a success. Um, in business, well, in business, it's, you know, obviously it's, you know, Helping a lot of people first. Okay. I mean, a lot of salespeople are taught, you know, you just got to get the deal done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Instead of it's about the person you're sitting in front of. They're about, oh, they're prospects, they're targets, they're demographics. Okay. Well, if you treat people like that in a sales situation, it's the business is going to come back on you, refund, whatever. Mm-hmm. So success for me for that is after a sale, the person feels very good about doing business with me, even to the point where they can be a friend. That's pretty good. And they don't teach that. And all the gurus don't teach that. That's right. They do not teach that. So for that, as far as marriage, my life with, with my, with Ann, you know, as long as we have good, close talks, relationships, we had a 
major life change. So I just put my business, um, I downshifted my business for a couple months. Oh my gosh, you know, all the hard guys say, you know what, your relationship with your wife needs to come second because business comes first. Mm -hmm. Without business, you don't pay the bills. Well, that's kind of funny. I, I kind of slowed down a little bit, spent more time with my wife and my business did okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting, right? So that relationship with her is very, very much important. That would be success for me. Beautiful. My kids, um, being well-rounded individuals who don't hate their mom and dad, I think that's pretty good success, <laughs> right? I think that's successful. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And so those are actual aims that I wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that word success is so nebulous. It means so many things to so many people. Right. You know. I mean. How can a guy you know, who doesn't have anything be happy, consider himself a success? You know, the, all the illustrations that are there about the fishing boat and all that stuff, sure. it's all out there. But that's kind of like way out there. It doesn't really, it's unmeaningful. Mm -hmm. See, meaningful success is about your life. It's about a person's life. It's about my life. It's not what, what's successful for you might be different mm -hmm. than it is for me. Right. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things I struggle with right now is because when, um, I backed off on my business to spend some time with my wife on purpose by design. And I feel like I'm not working enough. Mm -hmm. So where'd that come from? Right? Because we're brained into it. Because in your business, you have to make it work because there is no safety net. Right. There is no safety net. That's right. So that's, that's uh, hopefully that answered your question. Yeah. Beautifully. I appreciate that. So obviously, uh, as this goes out, there'll be people hearing it over the years as the podcast ages and, you know, as this uh, penetrates the marketplace, um, where can people reach out to you if they're interested in learning more about your experience or you specifically? Oh, well, it's real simple. Uh, they can call me on my phone. Nice. 602-481-7797. Or they can email me, my personal email, alanellis3, A-L-L-A-N, 3 at gmail.com. Um and then I've got a product coming out for sales. It's called Chill and Be S and Sell More. Um, the book uh, is now, it's at its second editing. So we're getting the proofs back and uh, that'll be launched. So that is like really, I mean, that is like, that is like primo, you know, because it's going to, it's a product that most people don't teach. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't teach that. And Definitely. They, they'll be able to reach me with that. And then all the information will be in the book too. Beautiful. Well, we'll definitely link that up uh, as soon as it becomes available and I'll get a photo from of that from you and uh, include it in the show graphic. Fantastic, man. Congratulations on that, by the way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a, that's a kind of boring to do. <laughs> you think <laughs> a lot of boringness. I write every day and I can tell you exactly. It, yeah. it gets old really yeah. fast. Yeah. Well, I'm just, you know, the things I've learned to get in fit, that's there's life lessons there. Right. My last question is always the same, my friend, and that is what does wellness mean to you? Well, wellness for me would be, again, it's my relationship with Jesus, number one. Mm -hmm. If that's right, I'm well. Mm. Every aspect of my life is well. Mm. Even if it's blowing up around me, my life is well. Mm. Okay, So that's what that means. If that relationship gets out of whack, then I'm not well. Mm. Okay, And so wellness, people can say it's fitness or whatever, you know. Um, but it, for me, it's that relationship. It's my relationship with other people. That's important to me. You know, that, 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 because without people, you're, you're, the Bible says if a man isolates himself, he rages against all wisdom and it's not wise. So that's how I'm well. 
that's what, you know, um, going to the gym on a bad day, you know, when no one knows what's going on, you know, and you just do your, just do the thing, you know, and you're like, I actually, I did it. I got through it today. You know, I guess I'm doing okay. Right on my friend. I appreciate that. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable and going into so much detail with your story. I know that you're going to impact a lot of lives with this and also with your book. Congratulations on that. We'll definitely get that linked up. So guys, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about Alan, be sure and check out his book. As soon as it's released, we'll have that linked up in the show notes. Reach out to him directly if you want to learn a little bit about the fitness world and how, especially if you guys are in that middle-aged bracket, if you want to, if you want to know firsthand what someone's experience has been, talk to this guy. He's created some fantastic results for himself. And with that said, on behalf of Alan and myself, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.